0: hello everyone i'm aaron good author of american exception empire and the deep state and host of the american exception podcast on patreon this is the very first episode of devil's chess club our new show it features david talbot author of several books including the devil's chess board alan dulles the cia and the rise of america's secret government that book title is obviously the inspiration for devil's chess club Joining David and I is a young scholar and journalist, Bryce Green. Bryce writes regularly for fairness and accuracy in reporting. If you wanna get first access to Devil's Chess Club episodes, subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. After that, you can find these episodes on Rockfin and eventually on YouTube under the Devil's Chess Club channel within American Exception on YouTube. Now on with the show. Welcome to the very first Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good, along with Bryce Green. Bryce, are
1: you ready for this? Oh, yeah. I've been looking forward to it. This is pretty, pretty darn exciting.
0: Very good, very good. Joining us is our colleague and friend, the author of Devil's Chess Board, Alan Dulles, the CIA and the Rise of America's Secret Government. He is also the inspiration for Devil's Chess Club. I'm talking about David Talbot, David Talbot, it's great to have you with us.
2: It's great to be here, Aaron and Bryce.
0: So you are a person whose career trajectory is really fascinating to me. And for people that aren't familiar with your work, uh, you had previously been writing for a, a journalist for a long time, working for Mother Jones, and you founded Salon and had great success at Salon in the early sort of days of Internet news. But then you wrote this book, Brothers, uh, about the kennedy years and we have um i've got the cover right here and this is the hidden history of the kennedy years uh what led you to write this incendiary book because it's a it's a fascinating read and it tells a story that for some reason didn't get told for 40 years which is the story of what robert kennedy did after uh his brother's assassination in dallas so how did you end up going from liberal Left liberal, solidly left liberal person to writing a, a really radical book like this?
2: Good question. <laughs> uh, I think my evolution, you know, began early on when, when I was a kid, and that year 1968 was a very important year for me. I was 16 that year, I was in a military school, Harvard Boys' School, as it's called at the time, Harvard West, like now, and um. I was a volunteer on Bobby Kennedy's campaign for president in 68 as a kid, Uh, the first Bobby Kennedy when he ran here in California during the primary. And that was a very volatile, very emotional year for me, obviously, and for many, many Americans. Uh, Martin Luther King had been killed in April. We thought of Bobby Kennedy as the last hope for our country. And when he was himself assassinated that night, we were up celebrating his victory. I'll always remember it. My uh, my fellow activists, young teenage activists and I, we were smoking weed up on Mulholland Drive and celebrating his victory in the California primary. And then he was killed, of course. Um, later that night, he was shot. And so I felt the uh, ceiling, or the floor rather, was uh, collapsing underneath me and the country we've been lo- uh, raised to revere. They had some hope because of people like leaders, like King and like the Candies and Milk Max, uh they were all dead. So I think uh, that and the fact I was in military school at the time uh, really radicalized me, made me very skeptical of where the country was headed, where authority uh, was in this country. And so that began my evolution at the time. I think I've gone between liberalism and radicalism my whole life. Uh, You're right, I started Salon because I thought that the web at that point in the mid-90s really presented the only opportunity for free journalism. And so I was one of the first to recognize that it would be a publishing medium. And thank God that John Warnock, who recently died, The founder, a co-founder of Adobe, the big uh, software company, also saw it the same way. Saw that we could, you know, uh, showcase his tools, his publishing tools, as well as he was a believer in free journalism, in independent journalism, and he stood by us through thick and thin. So I was able to do that for a number of years at Salon. And then I felt really a need to go back to writing. I'd run salon for 10 years. I was exhausted, burned out. As you know, web journalism is very demanding. I was not a kid anymore. By then I was in my 50s. Uh, So I decided to go back to journalism. The mystery that had always haunted me ever since that night when I was a kid in 68 was who killed President Kennedy and who killed Bobby Kennedy and who killed Martin Luther King? Those questions hovered over me and still haunted me. So, a friend Karen Croft, who turned out to be my colleague on the book, my researcher on Brothers and my subsequent books, said this was the book I should write. What Bobby Kennedy himself, who was Attorney General, the top lawman in the country in 63, What he felt was behind the killing, the assassination of his beloved brother, Jeff And those people, most of them, were still alive, the Kennedy people. And I interviewed Robert McNamara. I interviewed Arthur Schlesinger, Ted Sorensen, Nick Katzenbeck, all the men who had loyally served President Kennedy and some who'd gone on to work with Bobby Kennedy as senator uh, from New York. And they were at the point in their lives, I think, when they felt, fuck it, I'm going to tell the truth about the assassination of President Kennedy, what I suspect really happened. And they leveled with me, for the most part. They were honest about their suspicions. And their suspicions fell largely on the national security state, on Kennedy's own government. And they felt that his government had come apart. During his presidency, come apart over his intention to end the Cold War with the Soviet Union, with Fidel Castro in Cuba. That was, I think, uh, you know, provoked a strong reaction from his own government, from the Cold Warriors who felt that GFK was putting the country at risk by uh pursuing peace deal, back-channel peace negotiations with Moscow and Havana. They knew about it and they reacted very violently against him, I feel, in November 63. Uh, but mostly important, it was with Bobby Kennedy, who knew the dark side of American power better than anybody, as Arthur Schlesinger said, uh, the historian, the aide to President Kennedy, uh, it was with Bobby Kennedy himself suspected. In some ways, as I write in Brothers, Bobby Kennedy was the first conspiracy theorist. He believed that the uh, assassination of his brother was connected to his peace policies, what he was trying to do with Cuba, with the Soviet Union. He felt that the CIA, in particular, Alan Dulles, who was the former director of the CIA, moved against his brother. And he was right
0: right i recently re-listened to uh brothers i've read the book a couple times and i have the audiobook version and uh, it's a great sweeping you you trace the history of the kennedy years, and you had all of these conversations with so many people and uh that that were around i mean the people that were still alive and the bobby's silence i think is uh, the fact that he would not comment on this publicly um it, it it points to some realities of our political system that are hard to for us to wrap our minds around uh because you know he why do you think that he t- chose to be so quiet about this because other people like people around Jim Garrison were saying you need to speak about this uh because that'll that'll be that's your only way to deter them and uh, I'm when I re- when every time that I've read your reread your book that part just really sticks with me the whole like oh why didn't you say say that you were doing that because i mean garrison called it he told larry king that even as he was like stepping out of the car larry king drops him off at the airport and he just his last words to larry king were um they're gonna kill bobby and then he just walks off but what do you think uh was was bobby's thinking on on this
2: it's a very good question it goes to the heart of my buck brothers why was kennedy Bobby Kennedy, apparently silent <clears throat> about the subject that so engulfed him, uh, the assassination of his brother. At first, as I write in Brothers, Bobby Kennedy was devastated emotionally uh, by the assassination. He was, uh, as Jack Newfield, the, the journalist who was close to Bobby, told me, with that computer-like brain of Bobby's, he put together the crime Within the first 48 hours, he had Walter Sheridan, his trusted investigator, go to Chicago, look into who Jack Ruby, who shot and killed uh, Oswald, was. He found out as Frank Mankiewicz, his uh, press secretary as senator from New York, and when he ran for president in '68, told me, Uh, that when they looked at Jack Ruby's phone records, it was like the rackets committee witnesses all over again. They were all gangsters who he was calling on the phone in the days and hours before he killed Oswald. He was calling other gangsters. So they give Jack Ruby a mission, a job that he couldn't refuse. He had to kill Oswald. Um, So, you know, when Bobby put it all together within the 40 first 40 hours he called in john mccone head of the cia said did your outfit do this he told uh you know uh, a, a trusted cuban exile leader harry ruiz williams uh that your people killed him uh, meaning a uh, cuban exiles anti-castro cubans were involved i think he put together this operation it was directed by the cia and involved you know Uh, elements of the underworld and the Cuban exile community. I think he put together very quickly, Bobby did. And then he descends into a deep depression because he realizes he can't do anything about this. President Johnson has been sworn in as uh, JFK's successor. He hates Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy hates him. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover stopped taking his calls at the FBI. He has no power left as attorney general, his brother did. So there's nothing he could do as attorney general. And later he, of course, resigns and he runs for the Senate from New York and he wins. Uh, At the Senate, uh, as a leader, uh, he quickly embraces other issues, the war in Vietnam, uh, racial justice, poverty, and so on. He realized when he announced, I think dangerously so in '68, for president, and Jackie Kennedy came to him and said, "The same people who killed Jack are going to kill you." He knew what the stakes were in '68. He knew that he was taking big risk by running, and he only had one security guy, a uh, Bill Barry. His name was former FBI agent who protected him, held on to him when the when the people uh, clawed at him, literally clawed at him during his public appearances. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, I believe, had something of a death wish when he announced in 68. He didn't take proper precautions, uh, security precautions. And uh, when he waited in those crowds, anybody could have killed him. And finally, he is killed in June 1968 at the Ambassador Hotel. We can talk more about that later. But uh, I believe then that he revealed to people in the campaign he was going to reopen the investigation uh, Of President Kennedy's assassination, if he made it back to the White House in 68, if he'd been elected president in 68. He told people, he told students at a rally at Northridge, California, uh, on the campus there, that he would, uh, he he spoke very uh, judiciously, very carefully, but he did say he would take another look at the Warren report and the files that were still uh, hidden. I believe he didn't make this a major issue in his presidential campaign in 68, Bobby, because he knew that it would overwhelm uh, the campaign at that point. And he believed that peace in Vietnam, racial justice, poverty, the issues that he was campaigning on were very, very important and were dividing the country. And only he could have brought together the unique coalition that he did bring together. And you can see that. Uh, the people who lined the train tracks when his coffin was carried from New York to Washington, D.C. There were Hasidic Jews, there were nuns, there were Little Leaguers, there were blacks, there were whites, there were men, there were women, there were working class people. A lot of those people later went to, a lot of the white people went to George Wallace, the racist, later when Bobby was killed. So he brought together this amazing cross-spectrum coalition in 68. And I believe he would have, if he'd gone back to the White House, as Adam Walensky told me, he was Bobby's speechwriter and aide, Adam told me uh, in, during my interview that Bobby was a very serious man. He knew how power functioned. He knew what the risks were. He was not going to say anything about the assassination until he was in a position to do something about it. He would have been in that position as president. Adam also told me that as president, he had limited power. He knew that he may not be able to solve the case, even as president, but he was going to try.
0: Right. That, to my mind, is when we talk about the deep state, uh, you know, in the academic sense, like as Peter Dale Scott and Ola Tanander and others have, have worked on, not the Donald Trump, you know, caricature of it. And you look at the Kennedy brothers, they were really fighting um the whole uh, like the, in different ways you had like kennedy's battle with like you know wall street okay the, the the standoff with steel where he says my dad told me all businessmen were sons of bitches right that is a remarkable statement from the u.s president because the one overarching theme of u.s history is that free the free enterprise and uh, doing business is like sacrosanct and that's so that's quite a statement from the president I guess Roosevelt said some things in that vein and and sometimes Truman would posture that way but that's really something so he's going at he went at Wall Street in a particular way he was so alarmed by the bellicosity of the generals that he wanted to get that seven days in May made into a movie about generals who would stage a coup and it was already he'd helped to help them to film it and then he dies before it could even be released Uh, and Bobby himself saw when it looked work went after organized crime and he wanted to get a movie made of his book the enemy within which really posited that not that we had a problem of like some hoodlums running prostitution rings but that this was a nationwide systemic issue it was this dark force and uh it's like they were hacking away at different uh you know legs of or heads of the hydra but it's all as we see now in retrospect these forces are much more intertwined and we can almost simplify them and just call them the u.s empire there's that criminal element of which the cia the 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 criminality is institutionalized they're kind of indistinguishable from organized crime wall street is out of control they want to own everything including all the residential housing and so on and the military is this enormous colossus with a thousand bases around the world and it eats up the whole budget i mean how how do you think that by the end bobby with his by putting these things together you know the similar to MLK with his three triplets i mean do you do you think that JFK and Bobby had a sense of this uh in in a in in a way and then never really articulated it uh fully but like that they were they really were grappling with this one not totally unified but not totally separate force uh how I, do you think that factor is the,
2: the uh... And I just wrote a screenplay about Kennedy's last year in the White House. I can't talk about it any more than that, but I've been immersed in this history all over again. I think that JFK and Bobby, by 1963, did realize what they were up against. Uh, realized, he joked, in fact, as you brought up the steel crisis in '62. Uh, where he faced off against the entire steel industry. They jacked up the prices uh, against uh, their uh, agreement he thought he had with the steel industry, and he forced them, and he and Bobby, to back down. So uh, the steel industry was furious at Kennedy, and uh, he joked in a speech that they would try to assassinate him uh, in 62. So, you know, he was aware And you're right, he let the movie Seven Days in May about a military coup be filmed in part at the White House um, when he was gone. So he wanted John Frankenheimer, the director and Kirk Douglas, the co-star of that film, to make that movie as a warning, uh, Arthur Schlesinger told me, to the American people about the perils he was facing from the right wing, from the military industrial complex. I think by 63, both Kennedy brothers understood the forces they aroused, how powerful they were, and that they were out to get him, uh, President Kennedy. And uh, But I think because of the wealth and entitlement, like Franklin Roosevelt, uh, they felt they could withstand it. Uh, they were too self-assured, I think. Um, and he had always won. They've been taught to be winners by their father, Joe Kennedy, and they always had one politically. I think they felt they could withstand the heat and overcome these powerful forces that were against them. Uh, they didn't. And uh, they were overcome tragically for the country. And the assassinations of both Kennedy brothers and of Martin Luther King in particular, I think, ended the, the dream. Uh, the dream the country had in the 60s of a peaceful and uh, a just nation.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, one of the themes that comes through in this entire story when you talk about the Kennedy brothers facing off against, well, you know, not only U.S. steel companies, but the national security state and their hawkish mentality is the nature of uh, like, what Peter Del Scott calls overworld power, you know, this extreme wealth that allows individuals to exercise top down control in what's, you know, ostensibly a democracy and the combination of, you know, the national security state, uh, massive Wall Street wealth and industrial wealth. I mean, these are the forces that, you know, you know, coalesce to actually, uh, you know, affect a change of government. And one of the characters that comes up in this that it really embodies this whole thing is the first civilian CIA director, Mr. Alan Dulles. And, uh, you know, the the subject of your book, The Devil's Chessboard. um, Oh, you you have it right there. I have it in my hand. But um, this book, to me, was my first introduction to what's called parapolitics, you know, the the idea of a, a secret government sort of behind the public state that we have. Um, you know, I read it, uh, not expecting to learn anything about the Kennedy assassination. I had, uh, when I picked it up all those years ago, I hadn't heard of you. I hadn't really looked into the assassination or thought about it in any depth at all. And so I was reading it and learning about, you know, Alan Dulles and how he's a, you know, a real piece of shit and uh, his relationship with his wife. And, uh, and to the extent that the CIA was able to infiltrate different parts of the government, uh, and that was an important lesson in your book, even before the Kennedy assassination stuff. Uh, but when I got to that you know, that final part three of the book, uh, the, the case that you lay out is, was absolutely astounding to me. You know, my, my jaw was on the floor, you know, I, I was you know texting my friends, I was like, hey, did you know that the, the CIA and Alan Dulles was involved in the Kennedy assassination? Uh, and some people were like, well, yeah, you didn't know that. Well, While others were like, oh, well, oh, Bryce, you're talking crazy. Uh, stick to, <laughs> stick to you know, software development or whatever. Uh, but it, it was such an an important phase transition sort of in my understanding of how democracy in America operates. Uh, and one of the big things that you uh, dug into in understanding Alan Dulles's role in the assassination plot at an organizational level was uh, his calendars that were released from uh, or they they were given to and made available by princeton university Uh, and now lisa pease who uh, you know we all know and love she has been recently talking about uh, looking at those calendars again and connecting it with uh, some of the other assassination plots not just dallas but also uh, in washington dc and in florida and I believe in Chicago, and so and she also talks about how this calendar, after your book came out, disappeared from the Princeton University website, and she says she asks about it, and uh, Princeton said that well, uh, we never had a, any calendar like this before. Uh, so can you speak a little bit about that and uh, and about any new? or interesting revelations uh, or connections that have been made using these calendars and other material that's been coming out? Uh,
2: Thank you, Bryce. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I did, uh, as you say, uh, extensively use Alan Dulles' own daybook, his calendars, uh, which were indeed at the Princeton Library, and not, uh, as far as I could tell, that expurgated, strangely. to reveal what he was doing that fateful weekend of November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, when Kennedy is killed in, the, in Dallas, um, he, even though Kennedy had fired him two years before as CIA director, he's going to a remote CIA facility, top secret facility in Virginia a countryside, known as the Farm, Camp Perry. So he gets himself there, according to his daybook that weekend, that uh, Kennedy is killed and Jack Ruby kills Oswald. He meets, we found out, with a banker. He was head of the banking committee for the Bechtel Corporation, a big construction and uh, firm engineering firm here in San Francisco, uh, privately held. This banker was also Uh, a member of a pro-Nazi bank in the run-up to World War II and during World War II. He and Dulles had served together in the OSS. So according to his own daybook, Dulles meets that weekend for dinner with John Simpson, with this banker. He met before the assassination and days before with other bankers, according to his own daybook, not named I always wondered who financed the assassination of President Kennedy, because, of course, you had to fly in shooters, you had to fly in support team, it costs money, you have to pay off people. Uh, It's something that can't be officially, of course, uh, budgeted. It has to be off the books. Uh, So I believe these bankers who were essentially Dulles' clients, he always served his powerful and wealthy clients very loyally from the time he was a Wall Street lawyer at Sullivan Cromwell to the days he was CA CIA director. I don't think Alan Dulles was a rogue. He wasn't killing Kennedy on his own. There were powerful people behind him who he served and who financed it. I believe that this money came from people who were very powerful who wanted Kennedy gone for their own reasons. And Alan Dulles, I believe, orchestrated the crime and then got himself appointed, very importantly, to the Warren Commission, the official body that investigated the assassination. Some people thought, who were observers of the committee, thought that it should have been called the Dulles Commission because he was the only one without a day job. He was the only one who was very active on that commission. And Warren, uh, Earl Warren, of course, was the Supreme Court Justice, a lot on his plate. But Allen Dulles did not. And me, he made sure the investigation pinned it on the lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, who himself told the press before he was killed that I'm a patsy, I'm a fall guy. He knew he was being framed for the murder. He was a low level intelligence agent and they, they decided to frame him for the murder. So, Alan Dulles really ran the Warren Commission. Uh, He orchestrated the crime and the cover up, but he did so for very powerful, very wealthy clients.
0: Right. The amount of money that gets made as a result of this assassination. And you're right, by the
2: way, Bryce, excuse me, uh, Aaron, you're right that those pages that revealed uh, too much, really, about Alan Dulles' whereabouts the weekend, if you don't. 22nd who he's meeting with were disappeared strangely from princeton for a time after i had made copies of them no one else could they were gone and the princeton library was evasive about this uh another independent kennedy researcher found them thank god with great help from a librarian there uh did the uh diligent work that was necessary to dig them up again. So they are now available once again, what Dulles was doing that weekend. But they knew how explosive this was after my book came out. And those pages, somebody hid them quite well for a time.
1: And they were partially redacted, correct? Uh, But the the farm uh, was left unredacted uh, for some reason. Maybe it would have been more suspicious if, uh, you know, November 22nd, Alan Dulce's whereabouts were redacted. <laughs> Maybe they were just relying on the fact that people don't know uh, exactly what the farm is, unless you're like a, a deep CIA researcher.
2: I don't think that whoever went through his papers and went through his documents realized how explosive that could be to a skeptical researcher like myself. Um, that's the way the CIA operates. When they can't change reality, they change the record. So, Alan Dulles himself, as they write in the Devil's Chessboard, flew down to Missouri where President Truman uh, was retired. He'd written a very explosive op ed in the Washington Post after Kennedy was killed, saying the CIA is out of control. They're killing people, they're overthrowing governments, they're doing things that I never intended when I created the CIA as president in 1947. That was a very, viral, very <laughs> volatile, very volatile. Uh, explosive as I say, op-ed. So Dulles flies down to meet with the old man, Truman, says, hey, you didn't mean to say this, did you? Uh, you should retract it and and take it back because it's very, very controversial, what you wrote. Truman stood his ground and said, no, I meant every word. You're not going to, uh, I'm not going to retract it. Uh, so Dulles flew back to Washington he did the second best thing. He wrote for the CIA, a document saying that Truman had taken back what he said. An aide who was uh, not responsible wrote it for Truman. He didn't know what it was really in the op-ed. He's quite old. He's kind of out of it. Uh, So in other words, uh, Alan Dulles altered the record about Truman, about this op-ed, because he couldn't alter the reality. That's what the CIA does.
0: When I think about the shift of getting rid of Kennedy and what it set off for this class of uh, the, the overworld of private wealth, I mean, among other things, you have Indonesia 65 and that whole debacle there where the west papua had resource wealth beyond imagining really they had uh, this the biggest oil deposit in the region but also world history's biggest gold mine that kennedy wasn't even aware of and sukarno of indonesia wasn't even aware of but alan dulles was uh you have the vast fortunes made by military contractors in the vietnam war and i mean as a consequence it blows up the Bretton woods system and you get this system that replaces it that gives you know Wall Street e- even more power. I mean kind of exponentially so I mean this is this turn yeah, point is one of most end- consequential things. The Cold War
2: was a racket and made millions and billions for a certain number of people for the military industrial complex for Wall Street. So when Kennedy threatened this Cold War racket, and that's what it was, people making a lot of money, getting a lot of power from it demonizing the Soviet Union, threatening nuclear war with them. They thought they could actually win a nuclear war. 20 million, 30 million American casualties was winnable to them. They were out of their fucking mind. JFK knew it. He confronted people like Curtis LeMay, the head of the Air Force. Curtis LeMay won a nuclear war when we had superiority over the Soviet Union uh, in the early 60s. He, he pressured President Kennedy uh, towards a nuclear war. President Kennedy said this guy was out of his mind. He didn't want to be in the same room with him. Uh, so the Cold War made many people uh, a fortune. And Kennedy was threatening that when he tried to end the Cold War with the Soviet Union, with Fidel Castro in, in, in Havana. Uh, he did this by opening back channels. He was deathly afraid, Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter told me, of uh, accidental nuclear war breaking out of a holocaust on his watch as president in fact that's why he ran according to Sorensen, for president in 1960 because he was a student of history he had read about world war one he knew what superpowers were capable of how they could stumble into a fiasco like world war one and it even was exponentially worse of course in the nuclear age potentially so Uh, JFK was very concerned about this when he tried to reduce tensions with the Soviet Union and he gave the famous peace speech at American University in June 1963, in which we said we all cherish our children. He was speaking of our Cold War enemy, the Russians. We all breathe the same air and we're all mortal. That's amazing rhetoric for a president to identify with the enemy that way at the height of the cold war when he gave speeches like this when he signaled that he was intending to end the cold war these men powerful men knew they had to move against him and they did
0: right and uh the the military men seem like very aggressive and they've had this very kind of black and white and you know violence tool mentality the other people like people like dulles dulles is not of that mind i mean i think dulles ultimately would understand more than Lemay would that if you blow up the world it's it's not it's not positive for you and your
1: your back you can't get rich <laughs>
0: right but i mean it was a cold war this to me is the is a power that we have to understand is the power to create mythical realities that everybody has to accept like the cold war in retrospect seems like just a cover story for a are a, a major global racket. It's a way of turning international politics into a massive racket with, and the US has to keep some vassals happy, like, you know, and protect their capital too. the former colonial powers. But, I mean, it just seems like a cover story for neocolonialism and that the world hasn't moved on. We're still, it's the century of the common man that, that, that Henry Wallace argued for even a century of the sovereign nation state that's able to pursue its own development, you know, as that being the common thing, we haven't gotten to that, to that point. And, uh, so what, how do you relate the, some, uh, an individual like Dulles to the, to these bigger, bigger forces? What, what do you think is the significance of the individual, uh, operator? And why do we, why, how how do you think that you can illuminate so much by looking at a character like this?
2: Well, you, uh, I think Aaron uh, smartly, and, and for the most part, I think you're right. Draw the uh, back to the American Empire, uh, the American Empire, the Cold War sort of Empire, uh, as it was in the '50s and '60s, was all about American power and controlling the rest of the world. Their destiny, and Kennedy, by giving speeches, as I said, like the peace speech. He also gave a very important speech at West when he came out here uh, saying that we can't control the rest of the world anymore. We're a multipolar world. We uh, have more than just the superpowers uh, threatening the world with our weapons and our power. And we have, to learn, we have to learn to lead with our values instead with democracy and peace. That, again, was very threatening rhetoric to them. Because, as you and I both know, fortunes were made off this. And even today, we're in a permanent state of war, as Eric Mills said at the height of the Cold War, famous sociologist, as I write in the book, uh, in the 1950s, 60s, early 60s, he was uh, writing. And, you know, it's permanent war. We've had the endless war my whole life, ever since Kenny was killed uh some place or another now it's china has been demonized russia's demonized we're pouring billions of dollars into the war in ukraine this god-awful war that's only killing people on both sides bogging down and just uh, killing civilians killing uh children uh women old men terrible awful war just grinding on and on and the only people benefiting the military industrial complex, the people pouring money and guns and missiles and weapons into this nation, this poor nation that's been caught between these two superpowers. It's what Bobby Kennedy Jr. has said is a proxy war. And his own son went and volunteered for the Ukrainian military, was a machine gunner with them for a year. So he knows all about the war from a personal side as well. so. It's a terrible war. Putin should never have invaded, but we should never have gotten to that point where NATO and the West threatened Putin and Russia so much that they felt he felt he had to invade Ukraine. It was the final uh, uh you know line that they had crossed NATO and the West. So um yes, does Iraq continue today with China, with Ukraine, you know, whatever hot spot in Africa we declare? Yes, we pour guns, military advisors all around the world. As you said, we maintain nearly 1,000 military bases around the world. America still thinks of itself as an empire. While we bomb, we drone, as Bobby Kenny Jr. said, China's building, building dams, building schools, building hospitals. That's what we should be doing. That's what Martin Luther King said uh, nearly over 50 years ago that we're in mortal danger of losing our soul as a nation because we spend more money on killing people than educating them.
0: Yeah, yeah, it still holds true today. Now, I want to talk about another book of yours, which is not quite as germane to the subject matter that we usually cover here, but I just listened to it. the the audiobook version and it happened to be read by the same person who did my own book which made it I, kind of i probably made me happier also we got, the guy's pretty good arthur mori is his name and uh this is uh it, it's a it's the season of the witch and it's about san francisco in this in the 60s up up through the 80s and this was not about the global empire although politics plays a a big part in it this book came out about 10 years ago and uh, you have another column on this, so we can probably talk more about a column coming on this, you told me. Uh, we can probably talk more about this in a future episode, but uh, I just, because I had just listened to it, I had this prepared to ask you. So maybe without spoiling too much of your column, uh, what, uh, what are your reflections on Season of the Witch in San Francisco 10 years, 10 years later after the publication of your book?
2: well uh thank you Aaron. i I still live in this crazy city san francisco and i wrote that book from my heart they were stories i told my kids when i drove them across town to school in the morning so that book flowed out of me uh i'd written it in in my head and as you know it's all about how san francisco was the center of my Universe as a kid growing up as a teenager the summer of love the hippie revolution uh i loved what was happening in the city against a sort of a white catholic old boys network uh that ran the city and uh then of course uh, san francisco descended into madness and chaos in the 70s and a long dark period of political violence assassinations Uh, everything that was happening in the country at large was happening here in this small city, rather small, uh, you know, uh, city magnified. And then came out the other end and became uh, the city of, quote, San Francisco values, the city of love and tolerance and compassion and enlightenment. Uh, So in ways, as I say, it's my bloody Valentine to the city I live in and I love. My son, Joe Talbot, uh, directed and co-wrote the movie The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So he extended our family's connection to the city. And uh, as you know, that, that film is about the gentrification of San Francisco and how the Black population has been driven out of the city because it's become so unaffordable. So. I think that's one of the great calamities that's befallen San Francisco in recent years: is the widening uh, wealth gap between rich and poor. On the one hand, you have this tech revolution uh, that's colonized the city, uh, so you have these tech billionaires who live uh, quite nicely and then you have this burgeoning homeless population on the streets i just went to one of my favorite bookstores and on the street on the corner next to it is a homeless encampment a very uh, sad uh, bedraggled one uh, needles on the street used needles um people living uh in tents uh, the way that no human being should be forced to to live in it's like the third world um this was two blocks from this palatial city hall that we uh, gold domed to city hall where our city leaders work and uh, every day. So the city, as Bobby Kennedy told me when we lunch, Bobby Kennedy Jr. a couple of months ago, he used to come here with his father and his family all the time. And they loved San Francisco in the 60s and so on. It was a great town. It was full of energy. I remember it well, and and vitality, and and clean, and nice, and you wanted to come here. Of course, had lots of problems, too, underneath the service, but there weren't homeless people living on the streets in tents like this. There weren't blocks of stores boarded up. There wasn't a kind of ghost town feeling to the city. So it breaks my heart to walk around, to drive around these days, and see what's become of the city. Yes, we do have a liberal leadership. We have a mayor, uh, African-American woman, London Breed, who supposedly is progressive, is leading the city. But she's owned by the tech billionaires. She's owned by the wealthy. She does what they tell her. So I think the city desperately needs new visionary leadership, uh, needs a new, I think, revolution uh, like there was back in the 60s and early 70s.
0: Right uh yeah i've only been to san francisco you know three times or so which is more than i've been to any other place on the west coast but um the tech you stop your the story that you tell ends in the 90s i think with the kind of resolution of the aids crisis and the discovery of treatments for for aids but the book i uh, it's the first non really not deep political book that i've read or listened to in a while with one exception i read a book on ricky henderson which is also bay area related too (laughs) and i really enjoyed the, the great the oakland a's baseball player yes yes he was my favorite player growing up and then uh but then to, to uh read about him now that i'm older it's you have a whole different perspective on these things but oh, was there which... when he
2: broke the uh the stolen bass record
0: Were you, you were at the park
2: i was at the ballpark that day
0: oh when wow. he said that about lou brock and he said lou brock yeah. is right there and ricky said i'm the greatest of all time
2: <laughs> but i, I still
0: player great athlete he was i have sympathy for him because he he really he was in retrospect he comes across as an egomaniac not for no reason but when you look at what he actually ended up doing he not he brock had 900 something ricky retires with like i think 1600 or 1400 i mean that is that's a that's a guy who is whatever he's wired differently and i don't think we can judge him because he's extraordinary but i don't want to i don't want to derail this by soliloquizing about uh ricky henderson (laughs) My point about your book was and the audiobook version of it. I, uh, I, I hadn't listened to an audiobook that I was sad about ending uh, the way that I was about with your book. And the end, when I was finished with it, I was just like, ah, I, I'm bummed that it's over because the whole the way you, you take people through the, the, all these crazy episodes like the Symbionese Liberation Army um, and the, the Jonestown business, and, and a lot of this is and Harvey Milk um stories that i knew about but didn't know about as much in depth and then you um you bring it to the 49ers which is good because i i had a bit of an affection for montana and those and ronnie lott roger craig and all those guys uh and so you you tie all these things together and how what what, what do you think is the importance of just stories about you know human beings and so on because i i really you know it's grim when you look at all this heavy stuff all the time and it's not like this is light reading exactly but you're really a master of the the narrative and the human element in these what do you think makes that why do you think that this is important for people even people who want to understand politics and want to communicate about politics how how do you think of these things
2: well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think about this as a writer and as a father and as an actress all the time. What are we leaving behind? You know, I'm 71 years old. I'm, I'm no kid. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think about this a lot. And giving people a sense of hope, I think, is very, very important. So, yes, The Devil's Chessboard in laying out how power works in America was a very dark book very angry book I wrote with a lot of anger. Uh, I wrote Season of Witch in a very different frame of mind with great hope and love. And it's a story, as you say, of how we liberated one city, people did, and people power, people in the streets, suffering, fighting, uh, you know, brought about a new city for a time. It's unfortunately now, as I said earlier, fallen back in many ways. It's not what it once was, but we could still liberate it again. And uh, so I told my kids these stories, and they don't like to hear all the dark stories of my past about the assassinations and all that. It bums them out, frankly. And I think if you dwell on just the darkness, it it really does, uh, and it it, uh, immobilizes you. So I think to really get people uh, active, to really get them fighting. You have to give them a sense of hope of what change could be. That's why I believe in presidential campaigns like Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s. uh, Even if they end tragically, I still believe that people like Martin Luther King and the Kennedy brothers were meant to take us to a higher place. And we have to remember that again, we are capable of doing that again as a people. And it only happens at certain times and only is sustained longer than Occupy or Black Lives Matter for certain times, for certain reasons. But partly, Aaron and I, you agree with me on this, leadership is very important. You know, my last book was uh, By the Light of Burning Dreams, was a book about the political movements that challenged power in the 60s and how they won to a certain extent. Not totally, of course, but to a certain extent. So I was able to hang out with Black Panther leaders like Bobby Seale, did a long interview with Bobby, with leaders of the American Indian Movement, and who told me all about Wounded Knee, the great action, where they withstood the fuselage of Nixon's military and police uh, for days and days uh, and lived to fight another day. Uh, was a precursor of Standing Rock and other Indian actions. And uh, I wrote that book with my sister, Margaret, who's a great writer. She did the, the New Yorker magazine, Margaret Talbot. And uh, we wanted to give people a sense of hope how, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, people action actually accomplished certain things. And leadership, like Bobby Seale, like Dennis Banks of the American Indian Movement, Russell Means, uh, like Heather Booth, who led a great underground abortion movement uh, in the uh, when it was illegal in the early '70s and late '60s in Chicago, um, we want to give people a sense of, of liberation of 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 what's possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sense of hope especially right now, is, I mean, extremely important because for most people in America, especially, it feels like these times are almost hopeless. I mean, the empire, the the world that we've been, uh, we were sold in marketing material when we were growing up, I mean, it it isn't shaping out how it was told to be. Like, our living standards are declining. Uh, You know, deaths of despair are rising. Discontent with the system is, uh, you know, skyrocketing. And on a global stage, you know, we're seeing all sorts of disasters, like the the Ukraine war. You know, we we don't even know how many people are dying there, but, you know, estimates point to half a million could be way more than that. Uh, And, you know, in Europe, we're seeing uh, Emmanuel Macron use rhetoric like we're not going to be American vassals anymore. And, you know, the population of like France and Germany, they're saying that, well, NATO was partially responsible for this war. Uh, We're seeing, you know, anti-French and anti-European kind of anti-Western in general uh, movements in Africa like this coup in Niger. We're seeing all sorts of things. uh, But the only kind of hope for most people in the world to get out from under the thumb of this American empire is the the new system developing in the East, like the, the BRICS block, which we were talking about earlier a little bit. Uh, but, you know, we have countries like uh, Brazil, Russia, China, uh, South Africa, India, and uh, the, the BRICS countries themselves, and they also expanded to include others. Uh, but they're offering a sort of alternative to this despotic American-led system that includes, you know, like the World Bank, the IMF, and all these other financial institutions whose sole purpose is to prevent the development and autonomy and sovereignty of other countries. Uh, but we're seeing that being challenged now on a global stage. So you're talking about the, these people-powered movements in America. How do you see these movements and these political trends shaping out on the global stage?
2: Well, I think that's the question of the hour, Bryce. Uh, yeah. What's happening today? I feel this. I know Aaron does, too, in my conversations with him. The American empire, the system of control, Global control is fragmenting. Now, you know, the great singer, the late singer Leonard Cohen says, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Uh, I believe the system is cracking more and more every day. I think the presidential race uh, that's shaping up is an example of this. On the one hand, the Democrats, you have this old guy, Biden who's clearly not uh ready for prime time to run again he's too old he's too doddering he's too weak they won't let him out of the white house to debate people to have live events even now
1: walk off stage
2: they're afraid of what he would do or not do um you have this blustering uh faux populist uh donald trump who only is jacked up in the polls by all his legal uh indictments um and he'll probably win if it's against Biden uh, in, in the next year, which would be, I think, a disaster for the country, would be even more divisive. I think he'd be a weaponized, Donald Trump. He'd be angrier, he'd be more powerful. He would learn learned from his last four years when he didn't take sufficient control. I think he will take dictatorial control this time around if he's reelected uh, next time. So look, I think the only hope at this point is an outsider who really gets it, who can peel off some of the votes from Donald Trump and run as uh, Bobby Kennedy is running, uh, Junior. And uh, you know people attack him, this and that. The media is freaked out about him. The DNC, the corporate media, uh, the DNC is freaked out about him because he's taking on all the power centers. He's taking on the military industrial complex. He's taking over Ukraine and Biden's priorities, militaristic, I think, policies. He's taking on big pharma. He's taking on the corporations in general, corporate control of Washington and the regulatory agencies. So Bobby Kennedy has put himself, I think, at great risk, like his father, to run for president. He's a hero to me. He's courageous. Thank God he has better protection than his father did, but it's mostly or all private. Uh, the Biden administration refuses him outrageously in my mind secret service protection so far so uh, despite his high standing in the polls so I think this country is hanged by a thread to tell you the truth and because of kids one in the 20s one in the early 30s you know I have a stake in the future of this country and uh i worry about the future if we can't resolve these problems peacefully uh and do it through great leadership because frankly it does come down to really visionary great leadership brave leadership then mm-hmm. we're fucked. <laughs> uh <laughs> because we have so many things going against us racial divisions uh this commitment to spending on wars money on wars that are they're that just like you said, Ukraine is turned into, a, I think, a, a fiasco. And so if humanity again and again chooses greed and violence over love, over diversity, over uh, peaceful coalition uh, coexistence, then we're, we're fucked. We've got to decide at some point that climate change is real, that war is a thing of the past, that we all have to live on this small plan together, and if we don't do that, we're we're in grave danger.
0: Here, here, and um, I think with that, we can call it a wrap for our first discussion with David Talbot here on Devil's Chess Club. Bryce and David, it was a real pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you, thank you, Bryce. It's my and pleasure Garrett. as
1: well, and it was great to meet you, David. Uh, yeah. Try not to fanboy out too much.
2: <laughs> I accept as a, as a child of Hollywood, I accept your adoration.
1: <laughs> Excellent.
0: We're back here for a post, uh, post, postscript here of sorts, because, uh, we, we wanted to really introduce the devil's chess club and it's, and it's, uh, inspiration and, and founder, basically, uh, David Talbot. Uh, but we didn't really introduce ourselves, and not everybody is going to be familiar with our work. so I'd like to start with you, Bryce Green, can you tell uh, the audience uh, uh, give us a, a brief rundown on your on your background and and how you came to have an interest in uh, all these mater- these heavy materials dealing with the u s empire and the the hidden covert state and, and all and all of that?
1: All right, well, uh, as Aaron said, I'm Bryce green and uh my background is you know not as extensive as you know some other people's but uh i started learning uh, let's 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 play.
0: clarify how how old are you bryce uh
1: i'm twenty five currently twenty five uh currently in grad school uh well we went to the same school or i guess i'm going to your alma mater uh but i, I got the i i got interested in politics after You know, I I was always interested in, like, you know, basic liberal politics, like, you know, I would get together and watch the presidential debates and I'd be listening to NPR every every day, which, you know, I still do. But I'm more frustrated now. Uh, But I didn't really understand the the gravity of the forces that are, you know, that we'd be fighting against. I didn't understand that, you know, both parties are captured by, you know, the corporate state and and all that stuff. What led me to it was. uh, well, I guess the, the the big thing that pushed me that way was I heard a podcast where I learned that that corporations had the ability to sue countries for infringing on their profit making through these uh, international trade agreements. And I was like, wait, what? They can just do that and no one talks about it and that's not even an issue for debate? And then uh, from there, I started like reading more, learning more, picked up Noam Chomsky, learned about uh, you know, America's quest for global dominance, learned about the way the media is able to manipulate uh, reality and falsify history and manufacture consent for a population to support some of the worst policies of empire. And, and watching that process uh, in, in real time by reading the news and understanding the context that's missing uh, is really, a, uh, I think, an educational process. And it blew my mind wide open And so I started learning about, uh, you know, more about America's history, reading about the CIA. Um, And and I started uh, at the end of my undergraduate career, uh, I started writing for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which is a media watchdog magazine that uh, really uh, kind of serves as a bunch of case studies in manufacturing consent. Right. You learn about how uh, the first piece I wrote was about how uh, the New York Times, Downplayed the role of U.S. sanctions in uh, Venezuela's healthcare crisis, and it's just little things like that that go on to paint a larger picture of uh, you know a benign U.S. empire, and uh, it, it really you're watching history being falsified in action.
0: Uh, I think you mean a you mean that
1: it falsifies the picture of the benign U.S. empire. Uh, well, I, I mean, yeah, that the, the the distortions they paint that picture of a benign U.S. empire. And yeah, right. it, I got you. yeah. And uh, and I as I said in our interview, I was learning about the history, learning about uh, the CIA, learning about intelligence. And then I picked up David Talbot's book. And then you learn about the Kennedy assassination. You know, it was the first time I had heard the term uh, like deep state mentioned in a serious way. It was the first time I heard the name Peter Dale Scott. Uh, it was the first time I knew that there were credible uh, alternative stories of the Kennedy assassination. Now, you hear the stuff in the ether, but you know respectable people are able to ignore that without investigating it. <laughs> and so that's what I was. Uh, but learning about the Kennedy assassination, learning not only that they did it uh, and that they covered it up, but that it is impossible to seriously talk about that in uh, the current context today, uh, that's a, a very radicalizing thing to figure out. And so from there, I started reading more, learned more about, uh, you know, uh, uh, different deep events, you know, Watergate, 9-11, Iran-Contra, especially. I mean, you you don't learn about Iran-Contra in school. You don't learn about the drug trafficking, terrorist wars that we that we waged in Central America. And so learning about this stuff uh, has given me a new perspective on how democracy works, about how America works and the role that individuals play in uh, or could play in maybe fixing things so uh that's how i got here and that's how i uh that's how i met aaron
0: <laughs> yeah well it's great to it's great to have you here and i i really like the idea of you in bloomington of all places because i love i love bloomington it's one of my favorite places uh, in the country and uh, one day i'll get i'll get back there i did get my political science degree in bloomington and then I went to Taiwan for a year to teach English and came back. And then right then 9-11 happened. Uh, and I, went, I was, went down to Bloomington and stayed at my buddy's place for a while. And I met my, my wife down there. She would become my wife later. And I got to sort of stay in Bloomington for a few years and not do much that was really productive. I didn't want to find a political job and I didn't want to move away from my girlfriend at the time. So I really got to spend a good bit of time in Bloomington. Like I almost got a second, like an encore for my college years. It was actually really, I'm glad that I did in retrospect, because I could have gone into some sort of job or career, but like the, my gut was just like the corporate world sucks. And, uh, so I, I, I didn't do that. And I went into, did other jobs, education. We moved out to the East coast when she finished and uh, I worked in politics. I worked on the campaign in 2004, low level position. 08, I was an Obama organizer. I went to the inaugural ball, and I was all about Obama, and I'm baffled about that now, but I'm kind of thankful in a way because it it really forced me to do things that are useful in terms of, like, organizational skills and people skills. It was beneficial to me, but I was really, I felt betrayed by Obama when he ended up being basically another uh, eight years of George Bush. And I heard Oliver Stone talking on Bill Maher about this new book jfk and the unspeakable i remembered seeing jfk and the unspeakable or not seeing oliver stone's jfk film in the theaters and, the, and then watching it on vhs right afterwards and i was about in eighth grade at the time so that i it resonated with me i read the book jfk and the unspeakable and on my bookshelf i already had david talbot's book brothers and i read that one and between those the two of them i thought my gosh this is we're out here doing all this work to get someone elected like that's gonna matter but like when it comes down to it if if obama is the president and is able to become the president and remain the president it's because some other powerful force has decided not to veto his his life like they vetoed jack kennedy's life and this is profound when you think about the implications for it it suggests that the democracy is not really in the driver's seat that there's some other force and so my I encounter people like advanced uh, to Haven Smith, radical scholars trying to look at things like the Kennedy assassination and Iran Contra Watergate 9-11 uh, and the, the clandestine state. And uh, I started working with him and I went to graduate school at Temple and I got a Ph.D., wrote a book on the lawlessness of the American deep state, the American empire, uh, American exception, empire, and the deep state. It's a book published by Skyhorse. I was teaching high school. I think I may have become too radical for this high school uh and uh you know was basically told i was overqualified and it was quite a it was quite a thing but i'm glad in a way that i left uh for many reasons because uh, i can pursue this this work and i set up the podcast we got to interview a lot of great people got to work with peter dell scott wrote some articles with him even was a he's a hero of mine really brilliant brilliant guy most did the most serious work on these issues academically uh throughout the 70s and 80s uh 90s so really a legend um it's been awesome it's been awesome to get to work with people like this and talk about these these things day to day uh even though it's it's grim but i have a the, the disposition for it that i i just can't not talk about these things and i also have a son and i think like man if you're not trying to like fix this what are you doing so uh and i'm thrilled i I'm an academic and uh doing a i'm a media person because that's where i've been sort of forced to to work which been it's been a good thing but uh i the with the campaign the the rfk campaign i've i've pretty i've tried to support him even though that's not quite normal for an academic or someone in media but my thinking on this is like i can't even be in academia because you can't tell the uh, under the system you can't even tell the truth about the most consequential things and that there has to be some major change and if the in the system to to deal with this uh re, the the counter enlightenment that we live under and so that's you know we've been have david and i both uh came to similar conclusions about about rfk jr based on his background and what we think he wants to do which i don't see as the end game of where we should be ultimately but i think we have to have some way of winding down this empire and i hope that my work would inform the way that that might happen or the way that people understand it. Or I would contribute to the bigger sense that that other people have done. People have been around longer than me and done more than me, that we all might be sort of building something, uh, that we, that, as things fall apart and this other, this, this other superstructure of myth and, you know, historical epistemology, these histories that we write and these narratives that prevail, they're going to get falsified. And so what's going to be left standing I think these critical narratives are, uh, they're, they're, they're going to remain when the, the bullshit fades away uh, that, that we've been subjected to and the myths all get, you know, falsified. I think this work is going to be important and I hope that I—to have been able to contribute to it in some way. I'm really happy that we're going to be embarking on this together, Bryce, and uh, you show courage for taking this kind of subject matter on, so I salute you for that.
1: Uh, Maybe it's courage or uh, maybe I just don't have good, uh, you know, sense of consequences, (laughs) but uh, I'm glad to be doing it anyway. I mean, it's it's not every day where, you know, you can go around and talk to people about these sorts of things. I mean, when I learned that Kennedy was, you know, assassinated by elements within our own government, I was telling my friends, I was like, hey, don't you think? Don't you think anything of this? You know, I have we should, friends we who work do in about this. And, yeah, I was like, "What?" Like at the very least, we should like try to figure out and learn more about it. Uh, but they're like, you know, you know, whatever. You know, maybe maybe it did happen. Maybe it didn't. But it, you know, yeah, I, I had a I had a guy
0: who was a grad student. We were at an Oliver Stone conference, and he was uh, a fanboy, and yet somehow skeptical of JFK story. And he said he he was he was nice enough guy but he he said to us he had a little bit of wine and we was but he wasn't sloppy or anything like that And he said so what i don't understand is like if you know that like cia killed jfk like why don't you like do something about it you know like don't you feel like you got to do something about it and i was so I, I threw my punch on him no i i didn't i i just was like well you know there's they're kind of a little more powerful than us but if we're just trying to spread the word and maybe maybe that might help but, like, uh, well, do you
1: have any suggestions for what to do next? <laughs>
0: it's like, yeah, you're right. Now that you mention it, we should do something. Let's let's just let's let's go and uh, you know have a revolution. Well, that's not really realistic, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Well, yeah. we are go- We can wrap this up here unless you have any final well, first, words. First, I, I want
1: to be clear. I want to be clear. Uh, I am not a podcaster. I am a guy who is on a podcast, but don't call me a podcaster. Let it be known.
0: Yes, I accept that I cannot but be called a podcaster, but it's not, it's not my first way that I think of myself in my own identity. I don't identify as a podcaster first and foremost, but I do have a podcast, and I hope that people like it, and I hope that people enjoyed this one today. So, Bryce, and for David Talbot, I'm Aaron Good. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, who's tuned in for this first episode of Devil's Chess Club. Special thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode. This is the first time I have run the StreamYard app myself, so apologies for anything wacky going on during the video. Uh, We're all on a, a journey here. If you enjoyed the episode of Devil's Chess Club, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. You'll get not only Devil's Chess Club, but the American Exception podcast as well, with around 150 episodes so far dealing with the deep, dark politics of the U.S. Empire. We have an oral history series with the great Peter Dale Scott, a series on the JFK assassination, and interviews with people like Oliver Stone, Dan Ellsberg, Pepe Escobar, Lawrence Wilkerson, James Galbraith, Jim DiEugenio, Dick Russell, Robert Kennedy Jr., and many more. One last thing here that kind of blows my mind. I can't believe that David saw Ricky Henderson break the all-time stolen bases record in Oakland. Uh, That just blows my mind for some reason Uh, i had to quickly put it out of my thoughts or we never would have gotten to these other fun subjects like the kennedy assassinations or the gradual disintegration of u.s hegemony and all that friends remember that while it may seem grim every empire eventually loses on the devil's chessboard